0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Good morning, great to be with you today. I want to start today by asking you a question. The question is this, how do people know that we are Christians? Is there anything in what we say or the way that we live our lives that would indicate to people that we are followers of Christ? Is there anything that others would even suspect in the way that we live that would show that we are Christians? So my question is this, how do people know we are Christians? And I believe the answer is fairly straightforward. And the answer is, they will see it in the good lives that we live. And as we continue our journey in the first epistle of Peter today, we see that Peter unfolds the importance of godly living and the impact that that has on the society that we're part of and unbelievers that see the way that we live. Up until this point in Peter's letter, the focus has primarily been upon the character of God and our relationship with God. We've learnt that we've been born again. We've learnt about the living hope. We've learned about the fact we are living stones. We're a chosen, uh, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are the church. We are the people of God. And that's important. And we've seen a great blessing of God that has been upon his people and that we're set aside as God's special people who are loved and chosen by God. So the focus to this point has primarily been on, on who we are in God and our relationship with God and what God has done for us. But now in the passage, there's a change that's taking place. We move from more of the theoretical or theological understanding and then we move towards the practical or the applied approach to living out our faith. How should we be living as Christians? And Peter often offers practical advice and guidance in terms of how we should be living holy lives in an unholy and even hostile world. As believers who have received God's mercy, How are we to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received in Jesus Christ? Christians should live exceptional lives because their behaviour will bring glory to God. So firstly, we're told that our good deeds glorify God. The believers that Peter were writing to were called foreigners and exiles. They had been scattered throughout the region because of their faith in Christ. Today, we would call these people refugees. Peter says that there's those that with no social status and living lives in foreign lands, that they were to live lives that were abstaining from sin and glorifying God in the way they lived. Peter's point is this. Those that are the, the low end of society as they were as Christians, they needed to be living lives that were examples. Their behavior was to be such that not even the smallest injustice or matter of... Um, Disagreement could actually be brought against them. Peter emphasises that these people that were socially excluded as Christians should provide no basis whatsoever for people to bring a charge or an accusation against them. Peter wanted them to live lives that were examples that would provide an attractive alternative to the pagan way of life. If they lived godly, blameless lives in this hostile environment, then even if the pagans were to accuse them, there would be no foundation to what they were saying. And their good behaviour would be a testimony to what it means to be a Christian. And early Christians were often the target of uh, accusation and blame, even if it was false. So they developed an ethic of being blameless and of such a good reputation so that the hostile society they were part of had no way that evil accusations could be brought against them. So we don't know exactly what the specific problem was that peter was referring to here but it appears that these believers were being unjustly accused and peter urges them to live blameless and holy lives so that no unfair accusations could be brought against them so peter does offer an alternative he says that they may see your good deeds so not only are they to live uh, contrary to what was being lived but they would actually live Godly lives because their good deeds would glorify God. So Peter's argument is that the best way to protect yourselves from unfair accusation is to honour God and to live godly lives because godly living glorifies God. And Peter develops this whole idea of what the good life is all about by addressing issues of submitting to the government, of living honourably before our masters, of loving one's spouse and living harmoniously with one another. And today we're going to look at a couple of these practical examples that Peter gives of what it means to live a godly life that will glorify God. So the first one that he talks about is our obedience to government authorities. Peter says submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the Emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors. So we see that this command was given of submitting to authority And the reality is there's probably some passages in the scriptures that we would rather weren't there. And for me, I think this is one of them. This passage and its parallel in Romans 13 has uh, caused lots of debate and discussion over the years and there are lots of different views about what it means about how we should be living our lives. What is our responsibility as Christians towards the government? Are we to obey them? Are we to blindly obey the government regardless of what they tell us to do or is there some parameters around that if the government tells us to do something that is against god's commands do we still obey or is there something else that we're to be involved in doing and these are the questions that were being asked and the reality is we've got a good example of that playing out today the reality is we are currently in lockdown we are all sitting at home we are gathering together virtually as a local church but we're not coming together physically should we be disobeying the commandments of the government after all the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 that we are to gather together so is this a time that we are to be involved in civil disobedience should we be gathering together physically because God tells us that we are not to forsake gathering together and the argument for civil disobedience runs something like this The Bible commands us to gather together for worship. The government currently forbids us to gather for worship. The authority of God is greater than the authority of the government, so therefore we must obey God rather than man. Is this a valid argument? Is there actually a strong case for gathering together even though the government says we shouldn't gather together? Well, I don't believe so. And the reason for this is that I believe that as Christians, we should be gathering together. But ultimately our obedience to God is what is most important. And in this particular situation, by obeying the civil government is a way that I can demonstrate my obedience to God. The Bible says a similar sort of thing in Romans chapter 13. Um, Let's just look at what this particular passage says. It says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. So the terms in this passage could not be clearer. God commands his people to be subject to the governing authorities. To resist those authorities is to resist God. That's clearly stated. And, but what about some other general principles that are there? But what about some of the exceptions? Think about the book of Acts, when the apostle, specifically Peter, was commanded by the Jewish Sanhedrin not to preach in Jesus' name. And Peter replied, says, we must obey God rather than man. And the reality was that Peter knew that this was important. God had told them to preach in Jesus' name and an angel had just let them out of prison and reaffirmed this commission. The terms were clear. The disciples were to preach in Jesus' name and that was what was most important. If the governing authorities forbid what God had expressly commanded and supernaturally confirmed, then they were compelled to obey God And every Christian must be prepared to make the stand should they find themselves in a similar situation. But is our lockdown situation the same as this? Is it a similar situation to what we saw in Acts chapter 5? Put simply, is there a clear command to gather as a whole local church in the New Testament, even when we're commanded not to do so? Um, is there a logical argument for civil disobedience in this particular situation? Is there justification that we should be gathering together as believers today? Hebrews 10 does say, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So clearly, we're told that we should be gathering together as as Christians but I believe that in this passage the main exaltation to consider is how we may, we may increase in love and service towards one another regular gatherings and ongoing fellowship is a way that we achieve this the writer of Hebrews is encouraging a group of people to consider how they may increase in their mutual love and consideration and service towards one another As believers, we should be focused on loving one another and serving one another. And our normal practice is that we gather together and we do this within the context of gathering together. But at times, we may not be able to gather together, but we can still love and we can still serve one another. So going back to Romans 13 on obeying the government, I believe that this is Paul's argument that he's trying to present here. So what Paul is saying is this. Firstly, he makes a statement. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. And so the the question that is sort of implied there is why? Why should we do this? And again Paul says in Romans 13, because all authority exists ultimately by God's design, including the authority of the state, and that we must obey that. So the conclusion that is drawn from this particular passage is therefore To resist the authorities is to resist God's intent. But again, a question arises, but what is God's intent? And I think again, Paul explains that in this particular passage here. The answer is, it's God's intention that through his servants, these are the governing authorities, evil acts are punished, bad works are restrained through fear of punishment, and the good pronounced and encouraged. So the reality is that by obeying God, we can do what he requires in our obedience to his authority. The debate of how we respond to government authority is not a new one at all. This has gone out throughout centuries. Um, As I was looking at this I came across the example of Richard Baxter. He was an English reformer living some 400 years ago and in his book A Christian Directory which deals with all sorts of life questions, he specifically talks about these things here that he obviously was encountering in his own particular day. This is the question May we omit church assemblies on the Lord's Day if the magistrates forbid them. Exactly the same situation that we're talking about today. And the answer is this. It is one thing to forbid them for a time upon some special cause as infection, by pestilence, fire, war, etc. And another to forbid them intentionally. Baxter's application reflects his understanding of Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 24 and 25. If an individual neglects the public gathering of the church out of disinterest, arrogance, defiance, or unbelief, then they are clearly wrong. But if an individual is omitted from public gathering for time because of some special cause, such as concern for public health and the well-being and safety of our neighbors, then that does not, in any way, contradict the teaching and intent of the passage. So, what do you? Th- What do I think that we should do in light of what we've been told to do today? Christians most definitely should gather together as much as they can. But do I think we should stay at home and gather virtually today because this is what the government requires us to do? Most definitely, because I believe that we honor God in our obedience to the government by doing what the government has instructed us to do. I can honor God in my obedience to the government. So would there be a time when I could potentially see myself disobeying the government authority? Yes, just like in the book of Acts. When our faith is not able to be practised, we must follow God first and foremost. So as a Christian, I obey the government. I pay my taxes. I obey the road laws. I follow the lockdown laws. Because ultimately, God is honoured in my obedience. And in my obedience, the unbeliever cannot bring any false accusations against me. So it's important that I obey God and I obey the authorities. And remember what Peter says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And why does he say this? Because he wants us to honor God. So do I always agree with the government? No, not at all. Do I think that sometimes the laws of the government are necessary? Most definitely. Do I think that some of the laws are ungodly? yes at times unfortunately they are but my ultimate authority is God and he says that my testimony as a Christian is to obey these human authorities and that is what I am to be doing and so just a note about the church I believe that as a local church we should gather together but if there are periods of time when we cannot gather together we're still the church the church is not a building, it's not a physical location but it's God's people And we can gather together today, even if it be remotely, as God's people. We can gather online. We can gather together in small groups, even if it be online. We can take the Lord's Supper. We can encourage one another. We are God's people. We are the church, even in lockdown. And we need to see that our obedience to God is demonstrated in our obedience to God's authority here on earth. So next, we're told that godly suffering also glorifies God. So the next passage talks about um, slaves and masters. Now as we look at this passage, it's important to understand that although people often think about this as a, a modern day employer-employee type relationship, although it has some parallels, this is not really the case. The reality is, in ancient Rome, slaves played an important part in society and in the economy as a whole. Besides manual labour, slaves performed lots of domestic services and were also employed and often in some highly skilled professions and roles. Accountants, doctors were often slaves. It's said that as many as one in three of the population in Italy at one time were slaves and one in five across the entire uh, Roman Empire were slaves. So they were an important part of society. Slaves were considered property under Roman law and had no legal personhood. Most slaves could be Uh, not freed uh, and unlike Roman citizens they couldn't they could be subjected to corporal punishment, exploitation, torture and even execution. So even though some of the principles in the employee employer relationship may apply they're definitely not the same thing. In the context of writing that Peter has here, slaves performed an important part of the social order just like the government did. The idea of slavery As the foundation of the Roman economy needs to be stressed and this is probably the foundation that Peter was talking about as he wrote this particular passage that being submissive to the masters was equally as important as being as submissive to the government authorities of the day. Slavery was a central part of the labor force and important to the Roman economy and it follows that as Christians they were to be known as those that were happy to conform with society and the Roman authorities. I think, to put it differently, it was important that for the survivor of Christianity that slaves were to be good slaves since there may have been a case, if they disobeyed, that um, Christianity could have been completely wiped out and the survivors' movement may have been in jeopardy. One of the key points that Peter brings out here is that we will, as Christ did, suffer for our beliefs. And the slaves did suffer. The suffering of Christ gives us an example to follow. Christ suffered and we too will suffer. And the reason that Christ suffered is a noteworthy example of the condition of perfection that Christ achieved. He suffered for doing good. He was the example that we should follow. Nothing bad was found in this life but he still suffered. He was perfect and yet he suffered. Thus Christian slaves should take this example as one that they should follow. They are to live such holy lives and submit in an obedience even to the unbelieving masters in such a way that they follow the example of Christ. When Jesus was slandered, he did not retaliate, nor did he threaten those under whose hands he suffered. Instead, he entrusted his case to God, who judges justly and waits for God's vindication. The slaves, therefore, were to respond in the same sort of way. The suffering of Christ is an example for us to follow as Christians. What Peter finds in his churches is a consistent pattern of suffering, injustice and social exclusion. Yet, he still encourages us to submit even under such conditions. And more importantly, he grounds his exhortation to do this because of the example that Christ gave. As Christians we may suffer, just like the believers in Peter's day suffered, just as Jesus suffered. But remember that in our obedience to God and in our suffering, God is glorified. Our godly lives glorify God. So as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about applying some of these principles to my own lives, uh, my own life, I was drawn to the Sermon on the Mount where we're told that we're to be salt and light in the world. I know we've already uh, heard it, but I just want to focus again on Matthew chapter 5, and this is what it says. Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavours of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the god colours in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I put you there on a hilltop on the light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Be opening up to others. You'll prompt people to open up to God, this generous Father in heaven. So in this passage, Jesus uses two common examples from life that tell us how we are to live as Christians. These are salt and light. We are meant to be salt and light in society. When we think about salt, there's a purity that comes with salt. The Jewish sacrifices were offered with salt. Salt is a preservative. But most of all, we look to salt for flavour. And that's what Christians are meant to be in society. There should be a flavour of Christlikeness, a sparkle of joy and unselfishness and that our lives must affect and influence others. And light in the same way. A light is something that we see. A light is often a warning. Think about a lighthouse or the warning light on the dashboard. A light is often an attraction. Think of a lighted window looming out of the darkness or a neon sign telling us which way we should be going. A light is often a guide as well. Think about how we use a torch or a flare. Above all, a light is visible. You don't hide a lamp under something, you put it where it can be seen. The Christian life The godly life is not the secret life as it says a city on a hill cannot be hidden and in the same way we are to be a light that all can see christ is the light of the world and as christians we are to be the light of the world as well people will see our good deeds and will praise our heavenly father who's the source of light that they see reflected in us Both of these images have something important to say about our involvement as Christians in society. We are meant to be involved and to be liked and to be sought. We are not promised that we shall be able to Christianize. We may not be able to change the legislation. The values of the world may not reflect our Christian values, but we are challenged to be a presence, marching to a different drum and called into society to heed God's standards. As Christians, we are called to live godly lives. Because our godly lives glorify God. So going back to where we started at the beginning. I asked the question. My question is, how do people know we are Christians? And the answer, as we've seen, is, they will see our good lives. Because godly lives glorify God. And that is what is important here. Like Peter exhorted the believers in his situation to do, Live godly lives because those godly lives will glorify God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. We thank you that you give us an example to follow in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray that you would help us to live godly lives. That you would help us to be salt and light within the world that you have put us, Lord. May people see the way that we live our lives and through the way that we live holy lives that they would see Christ. Lord, help us to be able to look at um, the society we're part of. Help us to be able to live in a way that you would be glorified and that you would be honoured, Lord. Help us to look for ways that we can be salt and light in our society and that we can honour you. And Father, if there be any hindrances in our lives, things that may stop us from living this sort of life, Help us to make the changes through your spirit to be able to live a life that would honour and glorify you. So, Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for what we've been encouraged to do. And, Father, may we live godly lives because we know that that glorifies you. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church.